Hello, I'm Justin Wheeler, and welcome to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. 2020 has been, well, for lack of better words, a hot mess. I can't think of a time where we all had to rethink everything we do and find ways to thrive in challenging and frustrating times. Now, more than ever, we need inspiration from others in our various industries to help lift our spirits and carry on. It has been so refreshing to be able to sit down and have conversations I've had with some amazing guests this year. This past summer, we were able to have a new guest nearly every week speak about the innovative and creative ways they contribute to the nonprofit space. I had the chance to sit down with some of the brightest minds in fundraising, marketing, and much more. We covered a wide range of topics from crypto donations to viral fundraising campaigns. As we transition to the next season of Nonstop Nonprofit, I'd like to take a moment and reshare some of my favorite segments over the last couple of months. Let's dive in. The best thing that we can do is just raise as much money as possible and then give it to the people around the world. We set out to raise $1,000 to help this person, um, but we had no idea how to fundraise. Then you're doing it wrong. Okay. That is unacceptable and that is not the way to run a board. Who is this girl and what's the thought process when you're like, do I include a nickel? And it snowballs like any peer-to-peer campaign. The more people that view this content, the further and further it grows. The community raised $55 million in 2019. The more nonprofits can give their donor base that experience of the impact that's being made on the ground level, there's nothing else you have to give someone. This is Nonstop Nonprofit. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to our first ever best of greatest hits mashup collection of some of my favorite moments of this past summer. Let's jump right in and start with Chris Hammond from Corporate Giving Connection. Chris talks about his deep roots in peer-to-peer fundraising before it was the digital strategy giant it is today. I love his focus on the importance of compelling storytelling for online fundraising and how stepping back to take an analog approach can really aid the success of campaigns. You know, my original background had always been in events. It was, you know, when I first got started at the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition, you know, at its core, our biggest fundraiser for, for every year was our run walk. It was the run walk to break the silence on ovarian cancer. And at the time, we were doing peer-to-peer fundraising and I didn't even know it was called that, right? And, and it was something where I saw not only the sheer power of the community coming together, developing these teams, but I also saw the importance of competition and I saw the importance of developing templates and showing appreciation of the fundraisers that were, were leading these campaigns. And I, I was doing this we're talking in you know, 2011, 2012, but we were able to have an organization that didn't have uh, huge funder prospects, but they were raising $300,000 for these run walks. And it was all through the community. It was all through a shared story, a shared goal, or, uh, and, and, and really, really harnessing those personal experiences to fundraise and, and do it effectively. And uh, you know, here I am now, eight years later, and we're in the middle of a global pandemic where those um, you know, one-on-one meetings are no longer uh, as, as easy to take place or putting together an event is no longer um, you know, a viable option. And here I am seeing that peer-to-peer fundraising, once again, is still just as powerful as it was then than it is today. And where I think the, uh, the innovation on the fundraising end where it's shifted is it no longer needs to be centered 
uh, around a, a, an event. It can be something that can happen virtually. And if you have the great storytelling, if you have the great marketing and messaging and the strategy to execute it, you can really put together an effective campaign. Um, and I really see that over these next um, you know, few years, especially in the short term, peer-to-peer uh, -peer fundraising is gonna be very important. Um, and that's something that we have really focused a lot of our efforts is not only educating our current clients on where there is um, you know, clear opportunities to put together um, these digital peer-to-peer -peer campaigns, but also making sure that we're partnering ourselves with different fundraising softwares that have the peer-to-peer -peer capabilities and making sure that people have the right platform, but also the services needed to get the most out of their campaign. I love what you said, especially uh, there in, in the beginning about, because I do remember several years ago, there was this conversation around, you know, just being fatigued with peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. And a lot of people were felt like that it kind of had, had hit its peak. And I think that's because it was so single channel focused at the time. But what we're starting to see, and as you've pointed out, is it's becoming a much more omni-channel approach as it relates to peer-to-peer -peer funders. It doesn't have to be tied to a specific run-walk event. It actually could be much broader and more you know, virtually focused. DAFs, you love them or hate them, but hundreds of millions of donation dollars are flowing through them each year. That's why I knew I had to speak with founder of Millie, Rachel Klausner, who is on a mission to democratize DAFs and how a philanthropist of any giving size can plan their giving for a year. Here are the gold nuggets of what we discussed. So can you maybe talk a little bit more about kind of the inspiration behind that and, and why that's an important part of, of your company? Yes, this is something I'm a big believer in. I could talk about it for hours. But yeah, the philanthropy world has been really interesting for me to navigate. I feel very new to it still, right? I'm, I feel like I'm only a year and a half in and I'm, I'm learning a lot. But really what opened my eyes to it was when I started learning about donor advised funds, because originally I was like, oh, everything's equitable in the world. Not everything, but you know, like we're just, it's just a word philanthropy that scares people. And then the second I actually started talking to some really, really generous philanthropists here in the Boston area, they all started bringing up donor advised funds. And I was like, what is this thing that you guys, everyone's telling me about donor advised funds. And I realized, you know, when they would talk about it, I was like, why is this something I haven't heard of? My friends haven't heard. I would bring it up at like parties. I'd be like, oh, have you heard of this thing? No one knew what it was. And doing research, I realized that they just have these really high minimums. It was really inaccessible. Even like, I was like, oh, before, you know, Millie turned into a daft thing. I was like, oh, let me, let me just open up like a Fidelity charitable account. And like, I, A, did not have the minimum amount of, you know, to be able to donate. Like I, I could not afford the, you know, five or $10,000 initial donation right then and there. But then also it was a super cumbersome process. I had to get on the phone with someone in order to actually create the account. Yep. Um, there was like definitely some manual processes in place. And I was like, oh, this is so silly. Then I started looking into the laws around them. I was like, oh, is there a minimum legal amount that you need to have in there? Nope, no legal minimum. So it ended up being this really interesting exploratory kind of conversation that led into, wait a second, there's actually this tool that almost every kind of wealthy donor in America is using and every kind of average donor in America has no idea it exists. Um, and even like, I, I think back to folks, you know, people in my family who, you know, for what they've done in their life have been just, I've always think, thought of as very generous people like just would never have qualified for that amount of money. And so 
whenever they would tell me about their giving, it was like always so one-off and they weren't able to really plan it. And the ones that did, did it in spreadsheets and it was super, you know, cumbersome to track. And so it was just really an interesting, what I felt like wasn't, you know, like an inequity. And so that's when we started talking to donor advised funds across the country to try and get a partner and say, listen, we'll build a platform on top of whatever kind of more old school or whatever donor advised fund backend you have. And so that ended up being great. We ended up finding one here in Boston. And it was just, that was a wild experience because I had no idea what donor advised funds were. And then the next minute I was like trying to track down donor advised funds that <laughs> were way above my, my pay grade, you know, so it was great. So it, it, I think the other sort of benefit you're adding here is, you know, aside from the making it more accessible to the average donor is just the efficiency, especially at like end of year, like when you're filing taxes, right? Like you don't have to go track down a hundred receipts or 25 receipts, depending on, on how many different times you've given, you've, you've got it all centralized, you know, in, in your, in your, through your DAF. And that's, that's super interesting. When you think about award-winning websites, you don't always think about your favorite nonprofit. Rami, founder and lead creative at Medeo, a creative agency helping nonprofits not just tell their story, but visualize it, is leading the charge in what it means to prioritize your digital presence. Working with some major brands like Nike, Apple, the NBA, and more, he teaches nonprofits how vital their website is to the donor's journey. Medea recently won a Webby Award for its work on the Equal Justice Initiative's website and has helped many other nonprofits realize their own website is not just a project or property, but rather a program vital to fundraising success. It might sound weird and, and people might think, well, because I work in this industry, that's why I'm saying uh, what I'm about to say. But the, I really do think nonprofits should care even more uh, than for-profit companies about their, their brand, about their website specifically. When you think about it, if you are a big, if you're a major brand, you, the website is just one piece of what you get to spend your money on and invest in. But you also have maybe ads on TV or a, a significant uh, budget of ads online. You have a huge budget maybe through events. I mean, COVID-19 aside, you, you'd, you'd be spending a lot of money on events, even nonprofits as well. But like you spend a lot of money on a lot of other things and people will know your brand through a lot of different ways. But when you're a nonprofit, having a website, when you think about it in, the, in those terms, that your website is kind of has thousands of people coming across, uh, coming through it. it. The only parallel maybe for a nonprofit is the size of their gala. And, and it's not even a side of the gala. Sometimes it's like a football stadium of people that are coming to you. So in that sense, it's, the, it's kind of the most efficient way for a nonprofit to be engaging with that number of people on that scale and without having to rely on staff being there in the room every single time. I mean, every, you know, development of a person that spends their day on the phone and talking to potential donors or potential partners. If, if they get to have better conversations and let the website do the heavy lifting of the initial kind of uh, introductions and awareness about what the brand is about, what the organization is about, then it's just like a, it's a very smart way to approach it. I think to your point, why do we have still a lot of, you know, nonprofit executives or just in leadership that approach it just as a cost or as an expense? I think generally speaking, that's an issue within the nonprofit space of kind of people being very self-conscious about investing they uh, investing to begin with i think like the the culture that if every dollar that you get you're not directly spending it on the the programmatic work that you're doing then you're not really efficient in a certain way but i think it takes an investment and kind of a 
really a vision then, and that's when you rely on really wanting to partner with great nonprofits with that kind of vision, that you, sure, you can, you know, spend every dollar on, on, through directly to, to the work that you do, but maybe you'll always be stuck only being able to help 10 people at a time. That if you were to invest in your infrastructure and all, all this kind of, these different types of work that are intended for you to be able to scale your work, to do, to do bigger and, and, and better things, then you're, you're sure it's going to be a little bit more expensive at, at first, but you're going to be able to help not 10 people, but 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000. And I think that's the kind of strategic vision that is so important. And I think, you know, all of us need to just continue to talk to leadership at nonprofits and, and, and kind of try to educate and inform about the value and importance of the digital work, which is people just don't feel it when there's like, if, if there's 100,000 people go through your website, it's not the same if they look out their window and there's a hundred thousand people in front of them that are that are supporting them. So it just it takes that kind of conversation and education to, to visualize it. As I think back to my conversation with Anne Connolly from Singular University, I'm still trying to pick up my jaw from her brilliant perspective on the way nonprofits need to be thinking about growth. She flips our normal way of thinking about growth on its head by challenging us to think about it from a multiplier perspective instead of a percentage on paper. This conversation made me rethink a lot about the industry and how we should dismantle the 80-20 focus nonprofits have. Essentially, the way to look at it is when you look at many nonprofits today, they're, they're taking a problem out there in the world and every year they make it 10% better. You know, it's this very marginal increase on, on improving that problem. And that's great. But the problems that we're dealing with today, when you look at COVID, when you look at climate change, these problems are enormous. And 10% improvement is just not good enough to actually solve the problem. And so what we do at Singularity University and where this whole kind of mantra comes from is getting people to think more in a 10x instead of a 10%. So if I said to you, you know, how would you make the room you're sitting in better? Most people might say, well, I'd have a more comfortable chair or there'd be more light. But if I said, how would you make the room 10 times better? The type of thinking that you use to come up with solutions is totally different. You'd say, well, maybe there would be a hologram of my, my friend who can't be here today beside me, or maybe it would be inside a helicopter and I could fly this room anywhere in the world. And so it's all about how do you take that mindset and then use technology to be able to scale the applications that you're working on. So for example, when you look at Moore's law is, is the classic example where, you know, uh, computing power, it doubles about every 18 months. And so if you're building an application to solve a problem using today's technology, you know, that's, that's fine. You'll get that 10% improvement that you're looking for. But if you build an application or come up with an idea that uses the technology that you know you're going to have five years from now, once you hit that point in five years, your, your scale and your impact will rise exponentially. And so you'll be able to impact so many more people or you know, create so much more change because you've been able to scale it at a pace that normally wouldn't be possible if you're using kind of that 10% type thinking. Sure. And I, I imagine this sort of thinking would also need to flip the, the conversation of, you know, overhead ratios on it on its head, because if you're talking about scaling impact, you know, in five years from now instead of this year, I think that's, that's where a lot of nonprofits 
kind of like make this decision for 10% versus 100 plus percent, you know, growth is the cost of investment to scale and grow is not necessarily or usually realized in like that first year of, of the work that you put in. And so that year look expensive compared to your, maybe the actual outcomes. And so you need to have like a long-term mindset. And I think that's why we, we see so many nonprofits kind of, you know, teeter tottering between the two and most deciding on the incremental sort of growth and impact uh, wins at their, at their organizations. Yeah. I mean, this 80, 20 concept is, it's such a broken concept and it's very unfortunately become a bit of a mantra in the nonprofit space when really like if you were looking at a highly successful startup, let's say, they wouldn't be making money at all for the first, you know, five or 10 years, they would be investing in all the infrastructure that they need to then when that moment hits scale exponentially and create this infinite levels of, of impact and change. And so I think that's a bit of a, a mindset that I'd love to see in the nonprofit space where if you have a really amazing concept, you know what, put 100% of your money into establishing you know, and building what that's going to be for the first couple of years. And then what you're going to see is that your ratio will go to, you know, 99 to one after that, where, you know, you're only spending 1% on administration because of the structure of your project. Virality is not a happy coincidence. It's predicated on a history of impact and proof. So what would you do if your campaign went viral, like really viral? Normally, an $1,800 fundraising goal would be nice, but could you imagine if that goal was crushed and you ended up raising over $20 million? Where do you go from here and how do you sustain moving forward? This is exactly what the conversation with Liz Dunn, Chief Development Officer at Raices, and I talked about in her episode. The number one reason I would say that Facebook fundraiser was possible is because Raices had always been there doing the work. Uh, We weren't reacting to the public outrage the public was finding us. And so, yeah. you know, it's important not for people and organizations not to try and, and find a cause and like force themselves that square peg into the round hole. Do what you're good at doing, but make yeah. it relevant to people with what's happening in the world and people will show up. Totally. So a lot of concerns people have with Facebook fundraising and, you know, we work with so many different nonprofits across the spectrum all around the world. And one of the major objections we we hear why people don't want to use Facebook as a platform is because of, of the donor data. They don't get enough information. I imagine most organizations would rather have $20 million than $0 and no data anyway. So I think that like Facebook is an amazing platform that has a viral effect uh, if, if it's the right place and right time. What would you say to, to fundraisers uh, in your position who discourage their teams from using Facebook? Is it a tool that you think uh, should be utilized more or do you have your own concerns with it? Oh, there are a lot of feelings out there (laughs) about Facebook uh, as a fundraising tool. One of the interesting aspects for us is that the couple who started the fundraiser, they met while working at Facebook. Oh, wow. So one of the key ingredients in the story is that a lot of the tool that we use today in Facebook actually was frankly, improved upon during the summer of 2018 when this fundraiser happened. There used to be a a cap of like 10,000 or 15,000 on fundraisers, and that is no more. And I think we were very, very fortunate to uh, be in the hands of what I call super volunteers who knew who to call, who had the connections. And so they were able to kind of push through some of that corporate bureaucracy to be able to improve upon the platform and raise a lot of money. Yeah, we all struggle with the data side. I see the cost of acquisition of data on Facebook donors as a bit of a replacement to the fees that are associated with other platforms. And so um, 
I think it can be a bit of a wash when we look at our budgets. What I have found is that donors who give through Facebook identify as donors, even if they've never signed up for your email list, even if they've never gone to your website. You know, I've gotten emails or calls from people related to the world that they're seeing and, and what they're hearing about Raises on social media. And I'll go to look them up in our in our CRM database and they're not there. And it's because we've never received their data <laughs> through Facebook, but certainly they're identifying as a donor. And so I would say, make the most of it. Donors are going to go to this platform. It's already got a user experience fairly built out. So embrace the fact that you don't have to build a lot in terms of code or in terms of graphics, like it's all there. People know how to use it. And so yeah, we embrace it. It's not the the core of our, our fundraising revenue, certainly not something that we're trying to prioritize or necessarily push people to with a lot of force, but we really do try and embrace it as a part of now our comprehensive fundraising strategy. Artificial intelligence. This can sound like a scary concept, and for many nonprofits, they won't even tip their toes into it because of that. Wes Moon from Wisely came from a nonprofit background and found workarounds within the industry to build better technology tools to help create change for the better. He reminded me during our talk that this technology is not an option, but instead, it's an inevitable tool you'll need as a fundraiser in your tool belt to be effective as a 21st century nonprofit. I'd love to hear your thoughts around what is a fundraising team missing out on by not adopting AI into their practice? I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but like, what, what am I missing out on by not, you know, leveraging AI for our fundraising activity? If you're today not using AI, you're going to fall behind. That's, that's, that's the very uh, simple truth. And maybe the best way to describe it, uh, Justin, I don't know if you're old enough to remember not having even MapQuest, for instance. I remember printing MapQuest, you know, or the or printing directions. I think that was MapQuest, right? You, you got the directions and you printed them and you took them in the car with you because you, you couldn't have them on your phone. Totally. So uh, before MapQuest, you used to have to go to the AAA the uh, auto club and they would, pr they would do the map for you and, <laughs> and print it out. And then MapQuest came out and it blew everyone's mind. I used it to drive to San Diego from Toronto, MapQuest printed out. It was amazing. And then now we would never think of doing that. Yeah. Um, our phone is actually telling us turn by turn where to go, avoiding traffic. And not only that, it's telling us when to leave. And when we think about using AI and fundraising, it's the same thing. Hmm. Uh, we could get to our destination, but what we need to do is elevate ourselves for higher level activity. If we're using this car analogy, how do I get there safely? How do I know I'm getting there on time? Do I have everything that I need? And then it also removes a giant burden from you uh, on, on the administration. Yeah. So when you, when you think of uh, how that can have an impact on an organization, you start to really say it's almost an essential for you. Banks are going crazy with this, like large organizations uh, are ha and have been investing in this for quite some time. It's half of Amazon's business, mm. half of Google's business. It would be naive to think that we shouldn't be looking at this and finding ways to um, shortcut our way through our businesses. Yeah, I think that the analogy, the car analogy is so right on. Community. This was the bedrock to Invisible Children's success. It was truly a blast from my past to sit down with Jason Russell, the co-founder of IC, to remember what it was like building up the organization together as it pioneered new tactics that eventually led to Coney 2012, 
the most viral video on the internet at the time. Here's some insight on how we built a movement that completely redefined charity. How did Invisible Children have such a wide impact uh, even before the internet was, you know, played an important role in, in taking the, the organization even more viral? I think you probably could answer it yourself, to be honest. I think it was really, really based in the word community, which is not enough of a word to encompass what was happening at Invisible Children. The friendships were so intense and, and integrated. And I've actually like asked a lot of former interns and roadies, like, why did you come and like raise money to basically work for 15 hours a day, sleep in the van, eat pizza and burgers? And, you know, it just seemed like torture in a way or like really <laughs> hard, you know, maybe torture is too strong of a word, but like it was just really exhausting. But all of them right now, including Lisa Dugan, the current CEO of Invisible Children, said that was the best time of their whole life. Mm, Like they're like, it was genuinely, I've never felt such purpose and drive and excitement and meaning and my friendship. So it was really this community that like, if you were in the offices at any point in time over the 10 years or plus, you felt that energy. You felt yeah. people on the phone. We were we were so dialed into doing what we were doing. We weren't joking or playing around. We were there to help end this conflict and provide education and everything else. Mm. So yeah, I think it's just a community. I really yeah. do built around a strong mission. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I remember when I left Invisible Children, I think I was like 24 years old or something like that. And someone asked about the experience and I said, I peaked at 24. Like there's like no other experience that can ever match this. Would you be brave enough to change your nonprofit's gift acceptance policy? Ettore, coming from a marketing background, shifted careers to help improve on Save the Children's gift acceptance policy. He's been with the organization for over 15 years and is always on the hunt for the next new thing that will help his nonprofit accelerate their growth. What would you say if, if you can share since 2013, how much would you say you've raised through crypto? Do you have, do you know that off the top of your head or is it something you're able to share? Yeah, so hundreds of thousands of dollars. We hope that it will become millions of dollars. But yeah. to your point earlier, if you don't accept cryptocurrency as an organization, then you'll receive zero. Yeah, no, that's so uh, exactly some what is, is. You know, larger than zero. The, the processing fees, of course, behind it. But just with any type of currency, credit card or otherwise, there are processing fees. So it's we treat it as a, a essentially a, a cash gift but almost like a, a, a you know intangible asset, like a stock. And we do accept stock gifts also. Some yep. of those donors prefer to remain anonymous, but, but for those who would like to reveal themselves, we would gladly uh, collect their information and keep their information secure and private. So I think for us, uh, you know, the, the lessons learned around the Pineapple Fund, regulations change with regularity. And there's both federal and state regulations governing cryptocurrency in the United States. Uh, I'm a marketer, not a lawyer, but what I can tell you is that the state of Connecticut requires a money transmitter license if you're going to uh, accept cryptocurrency. And so we formerly were with uh, BitPay, but uh, during that Pineapple Fund uh, year-end gift, we realized uh, that uh, we were no longer able to accept donations through BitPay because uh, they weren't licensed in the state of Connecticut at the time. So we had this gap of a few months 
where we couldn't accept cryptocurrency and it happened to be the same time frame oh, no. that the pineapple fund. So we scrambled to, to uh, find a source and we, we landed with Gemini Trust Exchange out of New York. The Winklevoss, you know, uh, twins and I'm an identical twin. So there's some good karma there as well. <laughs> and they used to row in, in Southport and we were based in Westport. So these, these are the guys, right? This is the firm. And, <laughs> you know, so we went with them. Um, but one of the challenges we experienced is we, our finance team had to go in and do the exchanging themselves ah, and yeah. it'd be a, equivalent to accepting a stock gift and then having to sell it and having that sort of expertise in house and the, and the agility to be able to respond to that for us, wasn't a, a long-term viable solution. So yeah. we manually did it for a while ourselves, but then we're approached by the giving block. And for us, it was the perfect solution because essentially we could just use our same Gemini account and yet on the front end have this great widget, which sort of automatically uh, made the transfers and the exchanges. And now it's grown to more than just Bitcoin. There's a handful of cryptos that, that it accepts. So that kind of uh, middle process and also the consultative services around it, as far as uh, tax advice and so forth, that sometimes donors have questions. It, it's really helpful to have allies in your corner as you're trying to be what I call an entrepreneur at a rather large organization. Marketing is undervalued by many nonprofit executives and honestly, by many for-profit companies as well. It can look like a cost center, which I think is absolutely the wrong approach. Lisa Bowman refers to herself as a marketech, someone who builds at the intersection of purpose and profit. She's the former CMO of United Way Worldwide, who launched the award-winning Join the Fight creative campaign, and an alumni of UPS, who led the brand rollout of the UPS store. We talk shop about our outlook on marketing within nonprofits and how organizations need to prioritize more spend in this area themselves. Something that I've seen working with a ton of nonprofits is that often marketing isn't given the resources or isn't necessarily when, when looking at the bottom line is, is a lot of times executives look at it more as a cost center than, than something that actually is, is enhancing the experience, enhancing donor, donor loyalty and trust. Um, but for some reason, marketing is, is by many executives not treated that way. Has that been your experience or are larger nonprofits different? If you look at what's happening right now with the economy and the cuts that people are making, I do believe that marketing is often seen as an undervalued asset and a cost center. The two things that generally get cut when there's a financial constriction are marketing and investment in people, right? Training programs seem to get cut. Development programs get cut. And I think that for the nonprofit sector, um, marketing, you know, at least from my experience and my purview, was always one of the areas that was definitely under-resourced, um, looked at as a cost center because there's nothing that you can do necessarily for free. It all costs money, right? Whether you're doing PSAs and putting out media, whether you're working with influencers or celebrity ambassadors, there's a cost to all that. And so I do think that the perception sometimes is that marketing is a cost center. Marketing is actually the most critical thing that I think you need when you're trying to raise funds, right? You have to keep that brand front and center in front of people. Yeah. You have to make sure that it's relevant. And more than anything, marketing has the responsibility of knowing the customer through customer insight, but answering for the customer the why. The why is this nonprofit? My why. Um, why is this who I'm going to give to, right? 
because it's mm. making an investment yeah. in a nonprofit is just like buying, candidly, any other product or service. You do your research on it. You need to make sure that there's a value proposition and you want to ensure that you're going to get a return on that investment. It's just that with nonprofit, you're getting a social return on the investment, not always that tangible return on investment that you would get necessarily with a, a product or a service. I appreciate that sentiment so much because a lot of times nonprofits, you know, they, they believe that they're not always, they believe they're not competing with for-profits. And, you know, to, to some extent, depending on like the donor demographic, that could be true. For the younger donor, you're absolutely competing for the dollar against other brands and products and, and things. And so being able to tell your story, being able to share your why, being able to compel someone um, to give is that person saying no to something different. And, and marketing is the storytelling behind that, the, the reach that marketing can have is, is absolutely critical. Although Jeremy's organization, Preemptive Love, is an international operation, it was birthed from his real life experience of living on the ground in the country his work began in. At scale, this is hard to replicate. So hiring talented people who can carry on the vision or advance down the field is incredibly important. As a fanboy of this organization for many years, I was excited going into the conversation. And let me tell you, it did not disappoint. Here's Jeremy Courtney speaking about how his team vitally contributes to the organization's success. I mean, build a great team, I think is really what it comes down to. And still continue to care and obsess like, like an owner or a founder cares and obsesses over the details of things. The localized dynamic that you articulated that, that I'm not far removed from the work that we do, that I'm, I'm in it or proximate to it, even though it is at its core an international organization, I think is important. Obviously, there's going to be limits to that. We've expanded into other countries. I'm not living in Syria and living in Mexico and living in Venezuela all at the same time, obviously. So you, you do what you can to a certain level, but at some point you have to let the child grow up and go off to school on its own, so to speak, you know? So hiring great people and, and always the, the combination of keeping an eye out for top, top talent on the one hand, knowing how to cultivate and build internal talent and promote internal talent on the other hand, and, and how to set vision and goals and standards so that people can, can realize their highest ideals and expressions of what it is that we're trying to do here is, yeah. that's, that's the challenge of leadership. That's the challenge of growing up as an organization, not feeling like it has to be my thing to do or my thing to win or, or my thing to advance down the field. Sometimes we've gotten it right. Sometimes we've gotten it woefully wrong, but, yeah. but I appreciate the, the vote of confidence, you know, <laughs> but ultimately it comes down to the team. If there's one thing we have learned from these episodes, it is that the nonprofit sector has some of the most brilliant minds that are innovating at lightning speed for the good of humanity. I have truly been inspired by these mission-driven people and can't wait to bring on more like-minded individuals. Until next time, happy fundraising. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Fundraise, nonprofit fundraising software built by nonprofit people. If you'd like to continue the conversation, find me on LinkedIn or text me at 562-242-8160. And don't forget to get your next episode the second it hits the internets. 
go to nonstopnonprofitpodcast.com and sign up for email notifications today. See you next time.